0: I'll be reading from Romans, you'll notice it's chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Pastor Stan Kaler will bring the message why Jesus had to die. Was there some other way that God could have accomplished what he was trying to do? could a penalty paid by us fix the problem that we're in? Killing the wicked? Would that fix it? What if it wiped them all out? Mm. Now, if all the sinners were killed, would that solve the problem, and including even the angelic hosts that rebelled, if you can get rid of all the rebels? that solve the problem? Hmm. (laughs) Is this something what God was trying to do? Is this something that punishment can correct? Is punishment the answer to fix the mess? Yeah, I suppose that would be one way to do that. And yet... The problem actually occurred before he created us, didn't it? There was a problem before we even appeared on the scene. There was a problem. Does, um, who owns the problem? Is it us or is it God? Whose responsibility is it to fix it? So, you're suggesting that the problem is so great that only God could fix it. It's beyond our reach. Yeah. Then are we just mere bystanders? How does the death of Jesus fix me? How does the death of Jesus fix you? Just how does that happen? So is there a little roster in heaven with all of our names? And when he died, it was a check put by all of our names said, Saved. Saved. Hmm. I've often wondered why God didn't fix it right after Adam and Eve sinned. I mean, why couldn't he have solved it right there, and they could have had their children, they could have had a beautiful home to play in, you know, and a garden to play in, and it would have been all wonderful. Why didn't he do it right then? These are some of the ideas... That have been roaming through my mind, maybe through yours too. Alright. In Romans chapter five, the text of Dad just read, We were God's enemies, but he made us his friends uh, through the death of his son. This is from the Good News Bible. Now did you get the difference there? Enemies turned into friends. Enemies, how would you describe enemies? They, they want you. They're after you. They're going to hurt you, right? So here are enemies that are really enemies of whom? God, actually, and each other. We, we are, we're dangerous without God. We're dangerous to each other without God. So we are truly, yeah, and to ourselves. So we're truly enemies. But, <clears throat> God made friends, made us into friends through what? The death of his son. So this transition of enemies to friends, what's a friend like as compared to an enemy? A friend is, do you relax around friends? Do friends know each other? Yeah, they almost have to know each other and they are very interested in each other and they think of the best uh, for each other. They are in each other's camp, the enemy not so. Trust. That is absolutely true. Trust is absolutely essential. Yes. Um, Now that we are God's friends, how much more will be saved by Christ's life? But that is not all. We rejoice because of what God has done through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has made us God's friends. Now, in other versions of this passage, it uses, instead of friends... It uses atonement. Now, which do you like best? The word atonement or friend? You like friends. You know, atonement is a perfectly good word. Uh, and the interesting thing is, what does it mean? At one Atonement, exactly. You go back to as old as this, as, as this record of this word is being used, and you find it at-one-ment. Being made at one. Brought back the divisive parts into a whole, into a collection, into unity, harmony, fellowship, all of that kind of stuff. From as lo- all back as we can remember this word atonement, that's what it meant. Um, and so God brings us back into oneness through the death of Jesus Christ. I want you to kind of stay with me on this because these are some pretty important Thoughts that we're going to be thinking about today. Much later on, this word atonement went through a transition. Not that long ago, uh, it took on a sense of appeasement. Do you know what the word appease means? You have to, you basically have to correct a wrong by something that you do. You know, uh, if you. Uh, if you've broken the law, you appease that by paying the fine or a jail sentence or something like that. Something that you do fixes it. And this kind of really spoils in my mind what atonement is all about. Instead of, um, the emphasis here is on ourselves and what we do or what Christ did in order to satisfy somehow a God who is now against us. He's And that Jesus is trying to fix the relationship between us and the Father, as though Jesus is different than the Father. And I think atonement, the old way, is a much better way to think about it. Jesus is involved very much, not with the legal or the technical terms. And when atonement came in as a kind of a legal term, a technical term, it came in with a lot of other Latin words that described. You know, propitiation, expiation, and all those things I had to learn in school. And I wish I never had them in my head. You know, because they just put the focus somewhere other than what it should be. You know how interesting the Lord is? The Lord never used technical language to talk about how salvation works. One-syllable words are good enough. Well, atonement's not one-syllable, but friend is. Hmm. Hmm. Well, in John chapter 3, a verse that we know very well, verses 16 and 17. For God, which God is it talking about there? So loved the world that he gave whom? So who's the God? So are they, is the Father trying to, is he needing to be appeased? Not at all. Father's not that way. He's into this. He gave Jesus. It was something they did together. As far as the salvation of us. And I like this other text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself. So there, this whole idea of appeasement is way out the window. Just erase it, get rid of it. These two together are very into what they're doing. And they're, what they are into doing is turning enemies into friends. And the cross has made that possible. Turning enemies into friends. That's what the whole agenda is all about. In chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, John has a lot to say about this. Why don't we open up our Bibles and look at this verse, John 17. Here we go. We just finished uh, reading the epistles of John on Friday nights over at at, at Willits. Getting together and just going through verse by verse. And it's been a fun experience. We've learned some amazing things about John. And how he presents what he is presenting. If you go down to verse 20 in chapter 17. This is the Lord's Prayer. A little different than the one you read in the other Gospels. But this is Jesus' prayer to his Father. And this is the model prayer. It is a wonderful prayer. You know, um, And we need to think about it that way. In chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. In other words, these apostles would write and they would speak. And so the word would go on and the word would become immortal through their speaking and we listen to it today and we are changed by these words. That they may, what? All be one. This is atonement. This is unity. This is what Jesus was praying for in his high priestly prayer to his father as he came to the end of his life. Father, this is what I would like from you. If I do this... Please do that. Make us one. Make them one, even as we are one with one another. And that's a pretty close, intimate relationship. And so, the cross of Jesus makes it possible for oneness to take place. For a relationship to be established that changes us from what? Enemies into into friends. Very important Uh, The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are one. And they treat each other as one and they give honor to one another. And that's exactly what God wants us to do as well. And the glory which thou hast given me I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. Now there's other places in the Bible where the word atonement is used. This word of atonement. And John in chapter 12, you remember this verse, verse 32. He says, if I be lifted up, and can you finish it? Now this is the cross again, isn't it? When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he's going to what? Draw. There is some power in the cross that draws us. Notice, it's not appeasement. It is a drawing power. I think I've told you this story before. My wife and I went through our troubled years. You remember this story, don't you? And I was telling you about this. And we spent many a Friday night with her as far on her side of the bed as I was on my side of the bed. And looking at the opposite poles. And invariably, this text would come to my mind and what it represented. Jesus, he is amazing how he does is, He gets pretty personal, pretty intimate with our thoughts. And he planted a picture of Jesus on the cross in front of me. And he says, I want you to look at this and think about what you're doing. Did you hear what I just said? I want you to look at me on the cross and think about what you're doing. And I used to hate it when he did that. Because I'd always lose the argument. And I really believe that she, he should, why didn't he tell her? She should have that more often. And she then lose the argument and reach over and say, I'm sorry. But never once. I'm the man. I would have to go over, I didn't know if she'd pay any attention. But I will say this, invariably she forgave me. That was good. Oh, I won't tell my wife that one. (laughs) If I be lifted up, Jesus said, I will draw. And so, why did Jesus have to die? Because the picture of him on that cross is so powerful, a statement about love. Let them be one even as we are one. There was nothing that Jesus wanted more than anything else. The proof of Christianity in Jesus' mind was a church who loved one another in such a powerful way. When you love one another, are you thinking about yourself? No, you can't, matter of fact. It's not even the should. You can't. You have to be thinking about the other person for that to happen. Love requires that. It demands that. It's almost like two people are just merging into oneness. And that is what God is wanting for us. And that is what he demonstrated on the cross. He's basically saying, nothing can keep me away from you. I'm doing this because that's how strong I feel about you. And it's not to appease my God. It's not to, you know, I mean, there was a debt that had to be paid. But more importantly, it's the expression of an amazing amount of love. And I don't think so much about the debt. I think about the love. And the love grabs me. And it hooks me. And it holds me. And it confronts me. And it challenges me. And it changes me. And so Jesus died on the cross to tell me how much He loved me. And that works an amazing change in all of us. It's powerful the way that it does. You know And, and where's the focus on this? The change doesn't come by our effort so much as it is that Jesus has now been welcomed into my heart. And he is changing me from the inside. You hear what I'm saying on that? And so it's the power of the Holy Spirit bringing Jesus right into the innermost parts of my soul. Where that Holy Spirit does that pruning and cutting and sharpening and all that stuff that the Holy Spirit does. And recrafting me into his image. It's not so much that me crafting myself and cutting and pruning and shaping and all that kind of stuff. I'm just too dumb to know how to do that well. I've learned that over a lot of years. And, but when I listen to God's Holy Spirit and I'm confronted by the power of God's love, my heart is changed to such a degree that I am so willing to cooperate with Him. I was talking to somebody the other day and it was amazing just listening to my own voice. because when you Do you ever have that happen to you? You're surprised at what comes out of your mouth? Yeah. yeah. Well, I was saying to him, I says, you know, I've come to the place in my life that I actually cherish uh, the Lord just hurting me. Because I know it turns out really good on the other side. I've had enough experience with this to know that if he's not there changing me, it's really a painful world. Painful life. I get myself into so much of a mess and hurt people. But if I'm willing to do what he did, in a sense, recognize his love and let it break me. I mean, that's really powerful to be broken by the picture of the cross. You know, then I realize the cross is not such a horrible thing. It changes me. And it makes my life better. Wow, Ephesians chapter one, Colossians chapter one tell us some very interesting things, and we don't have to look at those, but you can you can check those out later. In those particular passages, it tells us that the death of Christ on the cross not only fixes the sin problem in our hearts here on this earth with human beings, there are beings on other planets, there are heavenly beings that, you know, that are involved in this whole issue. And the death of Jesus on the cross has changed, is working in their lives as well. It is healing the rift that came into the entire universe as a result of self getting between us and God. And the only way that they get self out of the way is for Jesus to put himself on the cross and show us in a demonstration how much he loves us and what he was willing to sacrifice for us. And I just want to say in passing here, I get a little bit miffed once in a while when I find people belittling the cross. And to the extent that they don't think that there was really much of a risk there, that it was a foregone conclusion, there was no risk, you know, and also to think that you know, the issues that they fought in the early churches. Did Jesus really go on the cross or was it just an apparition? You know, is it possible for God to die? All of those kind of questions. When we get to heaven, Ellen White makes an interesting statement which I profoundly affects me. She says, we are, when we know the truth and understand the extent of what Jesus has done, the crowns that are on our head, what do we do with them? Take them off and throw them at the foot of Jesus. I think that we haven't a clue in our head as to how much was sacrificed on that cross. And it wins our hearts even more then when we finally see it in its all of its truth. I think the scars in his hands are only some of the scars that are lasting forever. It's a long time. Now, peace is... is is atonement. Atonement and peace are pretty much the same thing. That God brings peace to us. And um, there's no more fear, no more anxiety when there's peace. Um, Is it possible to have a relationship with someone that you're afraid of? Can you move close into oneness when you're afraid of someone? Is that possible? very difficult so Jesus in order to go to the cross it was a demonstration that he loved us so much that he was willing to do that wasn't fear involved there was a little bit but he went to the cross and that uh, uh, relationship that we have with Jesus is the most important relationship Um, when I grew up in the church and all of us are affected by our early growing up years when I grew up, uh, didn't hear much about love. You know how old I am? I'm a very young 60s. So I've heard a lot of Adventist preaching and read an awful lot of Adventist writing. And there simply was hardly anything about love when I was growing up. I don't know why. Why? but it just wasn't there do you have memories that go back that way? okay you were taught that okay <laughs> you know and and I remember this story of um, of uh, in John chapter 14 one of the disciples maybe all of them were asking tell us what the father is like and um, and what was Jesus' response? You know, I've been with you so long, and how come you don't know what the Father is like? Yeah. And, and then they got a little bit confused, and maybe said, well, why are you talking this way? We want to not know about you. We want to talk about the Father. What is he like? They still weren't getting it. You see, because, and, and listen to this, they wanted to know about the God who terrified them at Mount Sinai, that awesome, powerful God, who consumed Sodom and Gomorrah, burned Nadab and a bayou, drowned all but eight in the flood, turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt, swallowed Korah, Datham, and Abiram, and all of their children up into the earth, who ordered the stoning of, of Achan and his family. When you think about the story of God in the Old Testament, it's, it's interesting the way this comes across. Uh, Orders that illegitimate children should be banished from the camp for ten generations. And in one blow, 185,000 Assyrians died. Bang. God. God did it. And killed all the firstborn in Egypt. And here before them was Jesus. How could Jesus be anything like that? So tell us about that God. Is there any difference between the two? Is Jesus as nice as we think he is? You taking a breath? I think words are coming next, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And you remember, um, you remember, it was also Jesus, who, um, in in the book of Revelation, tells us about the three angels' message, and that's a pretty rough message about the last days. And so, how do you make sense of all this? If I be lifted up, if I my loving gift of myself. I will draw all men to myself. But then this God does some pretty rough stuff. It's difficult. God wants our relationship not to be based upon the fear of what God did in all of that stuff. He wants it to be based upon love. And it has to be anchored there. We were talking in our Sabbath school class. And I would like to, have with you, had that go on a little bit uh, later. Um, We can tie down Evelyn someday. We can just strap her and tie her down to a chair and Sabbath school can go all day, probably. I don't know if she will enjoy it, but... uh, (laughs) She's doing a good job, too. Yeah, she is. But... um, you know the interesting thing here is is that we have a hard time with this um, which works killing all those people horrible calamities which works which captures our heart I don't think the scripture allows us to create an icon there okay However, good discussion. Don't let Evelyn get up. (laughs) This is a good discussion. Which draws us to Christ? Which one of those? Both are necessary. Absolutely necessary. But what gets a hold of our heart and actually turns us around? Yes. If the justice of God is, is taken away, this is just a matter of God being nice, which is not what you're saying, but this is how I wrestle the whole together. And I think, I think a lot of us wrestle with this. There's a great necessity for judgment, and if we can only see the awful poison that sin is, we don't see it because we sin all the time. Do you remember we, what? One of the things John, the beloved writer of a lot of these very love messages in the epistles, you'll be interested in reading the epistles because he talks about them. they had a really a rough character in one of those churches that he was writing to. This this let me tell you about this character. John would send epistles, letters to his church. John, the last surviving apostle. I mean, is there anybody that is more important on planet Earth than John? And this is his church. And he would send messages. And one of these guys in his church would prohibit the message from being read. And he actually attempted to cast out of the church, put away, refuse membership of people that were on John's side. So we think we've got problems in our churches today? That was in John's day with John. you know. And you know what John's counsel was? Put them out. Put them out. So that's a judgment message. So John has no trouble. And he also, all through the epistles of John, he tells us as well as his gospel. He tells us the importance of obedience. Obedience, you cannot get around it. And you remember what I said earlier? I have come. And I want to say this. It has been the love of Jesus Christ that has won my heart. And has brought me to the place where now I can say what I said earlier. Take me into the troubled times. That's the judgment. Take me there. Because I know that's the best place to be. We can't remove judgment from our lives. That correction is absolutely necessary. Yes, Lord. You know, spank me, uh, persecute me, do whatever you need to do. Because I have learned that that's best for me. Not that I'm a sadist, but I have learned that it's getting self out of the way and helping me to be happier on the inside as well as more effective with other people. So, but, you know, I guess the issue here is this is that Jesus died on the cross as a great testimony of his love for us, attempting to build a relationship with us, wanting so much that atonement, that oneness, that intimacy with us, so that from the inside, when we are in that intimate relationship, he could have some really serious talks with us, like he did with me on that bed on the other side and my wife over on the other side on there. Did we face judgment? Well, after that, we faced war issues, and but we dealt with them on a different level because Jesus was on the inside. And so, when I when I in in the lesson this morning, we're talking about choice, and I raised some questions about choice because it bothers me a little bit when we talk about choice, as though we are assuming that we can make good choices, right choices, or even any kind of choices. Paul talks about us being a slave. But the passages you read are absolutely right. You know, we do have a choice. And God has built our brains in such a way that unless they've been absolutely obliterated and destroyed, we do have the ability to make good choices, right kind of decisions. But it's based upon the information that is in the brain. And you will find that people, children who have grown up in loving relationships naturally make better decisions. Children that have grown up in tempestuous and struggled and and, and, and trying relationships don't have as good ability to make those decisions. So relationships, this is my point, relationships based upon love set us up to make better decisions. And that's what we have to do. That's what has to happen. So if we want to talk about choices, if we want to talk about, you know, becoming Christians and what, the, what Jesus did on the cross, we have to remember first that he built the basis of a relationship with me. He made himself one with me. And as I recognize that, once I catch that, what does he do? Then he starts working on all the garbage. But it's from the point of the oneness. And the love. Does that make sense? So we're not, absolutely, we're not getting away. But notice what it says in John chapter 15. Go over here again. We're in John chapter 15. Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, it's okay. It's only 11. That's what it says. 11 o'clock. John 15. Look at verse 15. What does it say? No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Remember we were talking about earlier in the sermon about friends? And friends have this oneness, this unity, this harmony, atonement. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now I have known, and I have been, at times in my life, I have been a slave, servant. And that's all I have seen that I was capable of doing. God's slave, God's servant. In fact, I take great pride in being God's slave at times. I have, What that basically means is I'm getting out of the business and making decisions for myself. You know, I figure that's God's job, not mine. And I I'll make a mess of it if I get into it. So I used to plan these unbelievable plans that I would make. My wife would say, oh, stop it. Stop it. They never come out that way. Why are you wasting time? Don't bother me if you're going to do it. You know, (laughs) just stop it. But in my mind, I had to lay it all out. Make these plans of how things are going to work. And you know the problem with all that? It was all based upon me. And I was just feeding this thing of who's in charge. Me. And now that God has finally had his way with me enough, you know, I am finally realizing, you know what, I really don't care which way it works out. I've got a Lord who has promised to take care of me. And I really don't have to know all the things. I don't have to have it all fixed. You know, it's God. All I need is God. That's enough for me. And so, that's, that's a neat thing. So, before I was a, a, a slave, a servant, and the difference between a servant and a friend, let's look at them. What is a servant like? Is he allowed to have oneness with his master? Does he eat with his master? Does he, does he, does he, eat with, uh, does he sit at the table with his master? What did Jesus say we're going to do the first time we see him? <coughs> sit at his table and we're going to eat together. So Jesus does not want us to think of ourselves as slaves. He wants us to go into this intimate, personal relationship with Him. And the personal relationship will breed in us a knowledge of who He is. And it's been amazing, my own journey as I've uh, taken this course, to find out that God just drops things into my head all the time. Just right out of the blue, bing, 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 bing. You know, problems would come up, I'd be busy trying to solve things, not so much anymore, I'd just kind of say, well, I don't know. I'll just let it sit for a while and God's bingo comes in. Or if he doesn't do that and I have to go forward with it, I'm just waiting him while it all unfolds to just give us guidance or to make it happen. And so a friend is somebody who is intimately connected with God, who is asking a lot of questions. Remember Moses, face to face with God and the people that he was serving said, don't. Don't you dare make us talk to God. He shakes mountains. He scares us. They were servants. Pretty much all through the Old Testament. Huh? Not all of them. What are you thinking? Most of the people. But anyway, what you have here... In, in what Jesus was establishing, he now there were others, I mean there were Moses and Abraham and there were some outstanding Job, people like that that were just fabulous, had a relationship with God. But Jesus said, our desire in doing all that we've done is not just to fix the sin problem, you know, legally. It is because we want a relationship with you. And when you build that relationship of oneness, in a friendship way. What that does is set the heart right, allows Jesus to come in and make things right. And so, I think that is, um, I'm going to skip over several things I was going to say. So servants don't need to know their master's business. They don't need explanations. They don't get orders. They just get orders to, to be obeyed. doesn't matter what the servant thinks. They must keep their proper place. And some of us That's all we want from God. It's a noble thing being a servant. But God wants more than that from us. He doesn't want us detached, distant, separate. Even if we're loyal. He doesn't want that. He wants friends. Friends know everything about each other. And more is required of friendship than in servants. Do we keep the Sabbath just to obey a command? Or in keeping the Sabbath... Do we discover a relationship with God? And what about every one of those commands that God gave us? They should be relational. Every one of them. And do we go around the country, you heard me spot off about this a little while ago, last time I was preaching here. You know, do, do we go around the country talking more servant language in the way we present our evangelism and in the way we give our literature out. Then we talk about relational language, and love language, and friendship language. I think God is wanting something fantastic from us. He's inviting these rebels, these enemies, to become His intimate friends. And these enemies and rebels can come to a place where they can be, they can know the mind of God. And they could know what's in God's mind. You remember what Abraham did? Surely the Lord will do nothing but right. And Moses said, no God, you can't do that. I mean, these are friends that have explored the mind of God. They know what he's about. They know his heart. And that's, I think, the basis of what all this is about. And... um Uh, I think that's what God is looking for today. So why did Jesus have to die? Greater love hath no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Only one thing will secure the universe from a continual scourge of sin. And I don't believe it's servants. It's friends. People that know God heart to heart. People like Moses, Abraham, Job, Elijah, Isaiah, Micah, the apostles, etc., and you can always tell if a person has a friendship relationship with God as opposed to a servant relationship. Do you know how? How can you tell? God came and died so that we could become friends. And becoming friends, we know the heart of God. And we are changed because of that. Through that, we are changed. Well, servants will talk about salvation. In technical language, legal language, friends talk about it in personal language, experiential language. Friends have an assurance, a peace that they are loved. And they always project feelings of unity and oneness. They don't push people away. There's not something bristling about them. Associating with them leads others to feel like that prodigal son felt they want to go home and you feel like they want to go home They, they know that God is there to welcome them the fear factor is not too strong in friends do they give evidence that they are God's friend do their answers give evidence that they have thought deeply with God over issues about God and who he is and do they live in obedience with God? So I think the reason why God died on the cross was so that he can have a relationship with us, capture our hearts, and in so doing, change us from the inside out and make us right as a result of the relationship. You see, friendship opens the heart. It opens the door. It makes the mind now capable of being changed. And that's what we need to have happen in our lives. Now, Lord, I pray that your sweet peace will fall into our hearts and that we will feel that love, that hug from the cross, that we are accepted in the beloved and that our lives have been made over And that we have been changed and born again. We thank you for what you have done for us. At tremendous cost. You are willing to pay a great price. It touches our hearts. It turns us around. It checks us in our headlong path towards sin and destruction. And thank you for your ability. That after you've caught and won our hearts that you're able to free us from all of those things that destroy us. Help us, Lord, to be friends, your friends, and to spend more and more of every day thinking about our relationship with you, not just the relationship of obedience, but the relationship of experiencing you, welcoming you, living with you in our hearts. May we take time to let you come in a lot of time. May we listen to you rather than ourselves more and more. And may that friendship become so strong and it becomes the sweetest and the most powerful thing in our lives, capable of totally changing us, each one today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.